Good afternoon and welcome to this Euroactive Debate supported by GRT Gas. I'm Brian McGuire. Our topic today is what are the challenges and opportunities for a European hydrogen corridor? You can use the hashtag EADebates for social media and our social media team will interact with you there. And if you open Slido and go to hashtag hydrogen corridor, you can see it on the screen there hydrogen corridor on Slido and you can send us questions. We'll take those questions during the course of the discussion as well, not just at the end. So feel free to get started on that and we'll put those questions to our uh, excellent panel uh, in a few minutes as well. Uh, same for the audience uh, here today. Uh, we'll take questions on Slido uh, and not uh, with open floor as well. So please go ahead with that. So by 2030, hydrogen is expected to become widely used in Europe and hydrogen market uh, will emerge. Hydrogen is a strategic sector for the decarbonization and strengthening of Europe's energy resilience and autonomy. New infrastructure for its transmission and consumption has been planned and developed. But building infrastructure requires a supportive framework allowing for forward planning and tailored financing mechanisms. And one major project that has been rolled out is the H2MED, which I'm sure you've heard about. Officially announced by France, Spain and Portugal in December 2022, with the support of the European Commission. In January 2023, Germany announced its willingness to join the project too. Relying on existing infrastructure and new pipelines, H2MED will provide a hydrogen corridor stretching from Portugal and Spain through France towards Germany and other countries. H2MED will be able to transport around 2 million tonnes of hydrogen to France each year, accounting for 10% of the EU's estimated hydrogen needs. And joining us today is an illustrious uh, panel of experts. And uh, let me introduce Stefano Grassi, head of cabinet uh, to Kadri Simpson, uh, uh, the European Commissioner for Energy. Maria Spiraki, member of the European Parliament, member of the ITRA committee as well. Great to have you with us. Uh, Raphael Hanato, a senior policy advisor, E3G. Great to have you. Uh, Thierry Trouvé, CEO of GRT Gas. And Manuel Rodriguez, head of decarbonization at ArcelorMittal uh, Europe. So, 60 seconds to each of you just to kick off with uh, your elevator pitch. Stefano, I'll start with you. Thank you, Brian, and good afternoon to everybody. Thank you to your active for having me here uh, today with you. Today is a bit of a hydrogen day in Brussels. I was attending this morning the Clean Hydrogen Summit. And there is a lot of confidence, a lot of uh, positive vibes in the mood, but also you can sense among industry players a sense of hesitation uh, uh, on whether it is the right moment to move from projects on paper to final investment decisions. And I think this is exactly the moment where as a European Commission and as a public authorities we need to double down. I think it's a moment where we need things to happen. We need to nail down this year the gas and hydrogen uh, market package. We need to nail down the Net Zero Industry Act and the late last pieces of a regulatory puzzle. We need to make the European Hydrogen Bank operational. And if you want to connect uh, all the uh, dots, we need also to think about infrastructure. This year, we will have the first list of PCI projects of common interest, uh, which will include hydrogen. And I think we need to force ourselves to think hydrogen, not as something that is consumed in a, in a small uh, cluster uh, very close to where it is produced, but also to imagine that it is a commodity that will be transported along, uh, uh, along, uh, along um, long distances uh, through different means. And uh, I think that's where the notion of corridors comes in and the projects you mentioned. So I'm very glad to be with you here to discuss it. Thank you, Stefan. Maria. 
Thank you very much for having me. I would like to add the line that uh, it is important to have a holistic approach on the new era of new gases. And uh, of course, we have to consider, first of all, that natural gas is not will disappearing in a few years. It will insist and stay here maybe for more than a decade. We have also hydrogen, clean hydrogen, the definition, and we have also uh, other gases, uh, particularly biomethane. So we have to have complementary solution. And by saying this, I think it is important that we have already in the pipeline two very important projects, the hydrogen for use and also the hydrogen for tech. We are waiting for the others which are in the list of important projects of common interest. But allow me to say that we have to insist on this parameter. The first is cross-border projects and cross-border cooperation. The second is to create ecosystems, not only local ecosystems in the hydrogen valleys, but also ecosystems in the area, particularly in the northeastern Europe on which I come from. The third is to boost the tenfold of electrolyzer and the yesterday's decision and the announcement of the Commission is, of course, at the right direction. And the last but not least is in the framework of the Net Zero Act, we have also to support the deployment of CCS and CCU facilities, which is also important in order to decarbonize the existing production of hydrogen, which is grey, and we would like to become blue. Thank you so much, Maria. <laughs> Raphael. Um, yeah, thank you uh, first uh, for all being here and for that um, opportunity. Uh, when we talk about hydrogen, uh, there, is, there is a lot of excitement, and I do not want to kill the mood, but I would like to recall a few uh, aspects and a few issues. For example, uh, when we talk about hydrogen, we're not really sure yet what will be the demand in 2030. And as Maria is saying, a gas will probably be here for the next decade, but it's also going to be uh, decreasing. You know, when we look at uh, the gas trajectory just with the Fit for 55 measures, we'll have 30% less gas in 2030 than what we have at the moment. So we do, do need to take some decisions right now on hydrogen, and that's why we have this roundtable. But at the same time, we do need to have the right data and the right assessment on what will be the demand by uh, 2030. And, and, and the, these things vary a bit uh, depending on who you ask. And it's the same also for production. We know that produ producing hydrogen is going to be a challenge, either if we do it uh, domestically or abroad. There will be some challenges. Uh, and the amount that we are actually able to produce, the amount that we are actually having as a demand for, for industry or for other sectors, are going to have fundamental uh, effects and, and are going to be very, very strong, strong incentive for uh, the, the building of the infrastructure of the future. So we do need to discuss that and to have this kind of informed conversation to know what we're doing and not having uh, you know, a free-for-all or uh, some kind of uh, infrastructure uh, race that would not benefit uh, most of the Europeans. Thank you. Terry. Thank you very much uh, for being here. Uh, we are, as a, a gas TSO, committed to, uh, to develop and to accommodate um, uh, the renewable gases of the future, biomethane and, of course, hydrogen. We are preparing for that a dedicated uh, hydrogen network. Uh, and we are working today on two types of, of uh, objects, I would say. The first one are what I call the local hydrogen si systems uh, in order to decarbonize uh, industrial hubs. And we have demands from uh, industries uh, that want to have uh, hydrogen and also producers that want to put their hydrogen on, on, on the, 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 the pipe. The second type of object is uh, what we can call the European hydrogen hydrogen corridors, and you mentioned it, uh, them in your introduction. Three topics I want just to, uh, to, to put on the table here. The first one, that we should not forget the, the, the paper from the Commission two years ago about sector integration 
I think it is very important not to oppose electrons and molecules, but to organize a, a proper complementarity between both. Second, the question of infrastructure, methane, hydrogen, and electricity infrastructure is absolutely key in the energy transition to enable uh, the decarbonization of, of the society. And third, third question, we absolutely need an integrated planification effort, including the three of them, at least, even uh, heat, but methane, hydrogen, and, and power to prepare the future. Thank you. Emmanuel. Yes, good afternoon to all. Uh, happy to be here with you. Uh, so the key point for the industry or for heavy industry like uh, steelmaking is that we want to be decarbonized. We are committed to be decarbonized as ArcelorMittal in 2050. And the first step is really to change the process, to switch from coal to gas. That's the first step. And then to be H2 ready. Saying we are H2 ready means that we are ready technology-wise able to switch from natural gas to hydrogen. The key point is what do we need to make it? To make it, we need to have competitive base load hydrogen at the plant gate. So this is where we need to effectively connect the most competitive production source to the consumption point. And this is where the whole infrastructure is not a challenge, it's the biggest opportunity we can have to make it work, to make sure that we have identified the right hydrogen source to the consumption point so that this shift from natural gas and hydrogen can happen as quick and as competitive as possible. And this is really what we are here for and what we are committed to so that it can happen from coal to gas and then from gas to hydrogen. And from what I hear already here, this transition gas to hydrogen really must go together. One will go down, the other will go up, and we need to manage both trends. Thank you. Maria, you mentioned in your remarks about the broader perspective for Europe. So how do, do you think it's realistic that we can get a hydrogen corridor from the southwest of Europe all the way through to central, uh, central Europe? Let me say that I strongly believe that hydrogen is not the silver bullet. It is the part of, a part of the solution. But I insist, and I think that Ursula von der Leyen has right, that it could be a game changer. And by saying things, I think that we have to, to take into account a lot of complexities that we can face. First, it is the cost. How much will it cost? And the liquidity, how, how long will it be? So maybe we need to consider some kind of complementary solution, meaning that we have to, 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 to go ahead with the transition and uh, using derivatives, mature derivatives like ammonia. Second, it is the scale and the size of the, of the hubs, the ecosystems that we will create. I fully support the approach coming from, from the industry, that we need to, to prioritize the sectors that we will decarbonize via hydrogen, meaning that we have, first of all, to facilitate cement sector, steel sector, chemical and glasses, these are the sectors that they are easily to decarbonize via green hydrogen. And of course, according to my opinion, there are opportunities on this. There are opportunities on this because, first of all, uh, we have a lot of fresh of renewables that we have to, to transform into hydrogen. So to, to have a, something like a pharaonic approach yeah. in terms of project, it's not the right way to do. I think that we have to consider on mature projects. We have already in the pipeline mature project, you have already mentioned them, it's a time to, to repeat. And we have also to, to increase the level of awareness and, the, and to, 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 to stabilize the market, to send a very clear message to the market that we are ready to proceed with a clean hydrogen market by concluding RED3, which is important, of course, co combined by the Delegated Act. 
which is sending a very clear uh, signal to the market, by having a, a significant and very successful auction uh, testing the waters in, during autumn, it is also a very important signal, by having it, uh, a significant amount in terms of, of money and the, in additionality by using hydrogen banks, these are not the most, but some of the instruments that we can use in order to send a clear message to the market and to stabilize the market and create a hydrogen market, first of all. Okay, Rafael, clearly there are opportunities here. What are the challenges? So uh, when we look at uh, especially a, a project just like uh, H2Med, for example, there is a, a clear question of um, cost attribution, cost allocation. You said it would cost a lot of money, but also uh, distribution of value. So it's a bit like when we're talking about having uh, Morocco or uh, North Africa producing a lot of green hydrogen and sending it to, to, uh, to Europe. The question is, why uh, would they just uh, sit on this uh, very important and very expensive fuel or, or energy carrier that is hydrogen and not use them to actually produce the, uh, the, the, the goods or the, the, the things that they, they can produce with green hydrogen uh, in the place that uh, they are actually producing it. So for Morocco, it's one thing, and you have all the question around CBAM, but it's also a question of uh, intra-EU uh, um, value allocation because you know Portugal and Spain have a lot of renewable. They could produce a lot of cheap, green hydrogen, but why wouldn't they use it for their own industry? Why would it go to France and to, you know, Marseille, La Fosse-sur-Mer, where you have a lot of industry? Why would it also go to uh, the German industry uh, for it to also make a lot of added value products that are produced with green hydrogen? Uh, and I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm just saying when we look at volumes and when we look at cost and value allocation, it's a question that we don't really see an answer yet to, and, and we would be very interested to, to look at that because it also poses question of, of uh, distribution of roads uh, within Europe. Okay, Stefano, how, how do you see this? Is this a, a false market approach, if we, if we take that view, or is this simply uh, we treat it as another commodity? Well, I, I think, sticking to the infrastructure, uh, we have gained over the last decade a lot of experience with ENSOE and ENSOG on how to plan a network for, for gas or for methane or for electricity and where are the missing links, what are the gaps, uh, what you add, uh, cost and benefit, etc. Now, first time we are trying to plan and imagine what could be the network in the, in the future for, for hydrogen is a completely different uh, set, set of issues that you need to address and information that you need. What you need to look at uh, when you look at a corridor, like the one we are discussing, is first of all where, uh, what is the expected uh, type of con uh, production uh, at the origin of the corridor, and what is, on the other hand, what you expect as, as demand. And then I think on both ends, um, here we, we are talking about a project which has, has a strong potential because both Portugal and, and Spain have very renewable reach. We have very low cost of electricity potentially from renewables in the future and uh, a planned higher presentation of, of renewables. And the demand centers are all located, whether in France or further up in the north, in Germany, there is certainly uh, a, a strong demand that will be there. As a strong uh, decarbonization potential, uh, I think it has a strong potential for market integration for areas that not always are super well interconnected. And uh, I think as a, a, an element, uh, uh, the last element that one has to look overall is the cost benefits. And, and this will be the grounds on which we will see whether this, this project uh, flies or not. I think I just add that uh, 
It has also an element, a symbolic element, of not only of market integration, but of, I think, uh, around Repower U, of unity in an area. And I think Madame Spiraki knows very well, because ITRE has uh, sent a lot of warnings about the importance of interconnection uh, and interconnectivity in this area, where both on gas and on electricity, either there were a lot of difficulty on interconnection or very, very slow progress in the existing Project. So I think the fact that the, the leaders of the, the, the participating countries have at the highest level uh, blessed uh, this project, I think it's also a sign that we can open a new chapter of cooperation in, in, in a regional area. Okay, Thierry, the, the supply and demand side of this, how do you see it uh, in, in terms of, of the, the market viability? Uh, you know, do we start small, scale up? Is this you were using existing infrastructure to begin with, things like, how does, how does this become viable? When we discuss, for instance, with our Spanish colleagues, uh, they say that they first will be producing hydrogen for, for the peninsula, the Iberian Peninsula, obviously. But then there will be overproduction. Uh, and uh, if we look at Germany, for instance, they are not producing natural gas, but they are a place where there is a, a big industry that is using that has been using a lot of natural gas. So it's not because the uh, the energy is produced on one point that the industry and the consumer will be uh, in that point. And so we, 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 we I think we must accept the idea that the hydrogen, like natural gas, even like electricity, more or less, will travel. Uh, through the points, the places where uh, it is cheap to produce to the places where they are, it is used. So we, we have realized um, a, 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 an analysis which is uh, based on the Joint Research Center methodology just to assess what are the benefits of the H2 med. And this is this methodology which is used by the Commission to, to assess also the PCI candidates. What we found is that H2 med leads to social, societal benefits of around 40 billion of euros, which is the value of green gas, greenhouse gas emission savings. Uh, around 133 million tons of CO2 uh, avoided, say, say emission saved. Uh, and also what is interesting to see is that the, a, a project like that will help to avoid curtailing the production of renewable in the Iberian Peninsula. And it also it will help to um, uh, a higher utilization rate of the electrolyzers. Okay, thank you. Uh, from the industry side, Manuel, do you, do you see this coming online fast enough to, for your objectives or are we going to face bottlenecks or as Stefano said, there's been a learning curve with other uh, types of energy project which uh, should assist here? Well, the, the question is not fast enough. Okay. The question is competitive enough or not. Uh, as I was saying, we'll make the shift from coal to natural gas. It will happen, so no, no doubt on that. Then to go from natural gas to hydrogen, you need to make it competitive. And if for that, you need to commit for 15 years on the hydrogen, 15 years on a new pipe and so on, you will kill the business, for sure, because you cannot pay for a new pipe. So you have to find a way to make sure that supply is there, that demand is there, and that transport and storage is not in the equation for choosing. You need to choose hydrogen for its own merit versus natural gas. The rest must be at level playing field. And as long as it does not exist, it will be almost impossible to shift 
from natural gas to hydrogen in a competitive way. What does it take to shift to hydrogen in a competitive way? It means in terms of quantum or in terms of... Uh, we need to be, as a heavy industry, we need to be cost competitive. To be cost competitive, you need to get hydrogen at the price of natural gas and avoided carbon. Okay. As simple as that. Otherwise, you will have another cost that you are not sure, and today there is no guarantee at all, that the customer will pay for that. And you make investment for 10, 15, or you commit for 10, 15, 20 years okay. with no backup from the customer. Quite a tough decision, if not possible. Maria, that doesn't sound terribly optimistic. Yes, but allow me to say that uh, in uh, coming from the, the market perspective, uh, the point that uh, our colleague has already put on the table is, is the right point. Because uh, we have now to send the messages that uh, we are ready to invest, to heavily invest in the infrastructures. And that's why I think that the, the, the cross-border cooperation and also the collaboration with the third countries, uh, starting with Morocco and start, uh, maybe with, uh, with Algeria and other countries, is a very important, significant step. At the same time, we have to, to understand that the cost could be heavy. The cost could be heavy because I think that the connection is also something that it is, it is needed a lot of investments. And in this regard, I think that we have to be attractive. How can we be attractive? We can be attractive by giving premium to clean hydrogen. Frankly speaking, we have to give a premium which will be at least equal with the premium in the US. And it, it must be more than $3, <laughs> speaking with numbers. This is the first one. And secondly, to, 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 to support the repurposing of the existing infrastructure in order to reduce the cost of the infrastructure needed. Sure. And it's not something to decommission the, 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 the existing infrastructure because, as I have already said, gas is not disappearing from the market. But we have to shift from gas to clean hydrogen as fast as possible, and at the same time to provide the incentives and the stability to the market. Stefano, the instruments are there to achieve this, but where do you think that the, this market stability, this market confidence is going to come from in turn? Because this is to, uh, it's not just an energy issue, it's not just a, a decarbonization effort. There's, there's a strategic element to this as well in terms of Europe's autonomy and, and energy security uh, over the longer term. So how do we finance this from the public side? My, my impression, and having seen different projects and talked to, to many operators, that this is an area where you really need to look for a combination of instruments. And I take the, the, the green steel, uh, this green steel part. One way, of course, to, to bring down the, the price of, um, of hydrogen is, of course, to scale up and bring down the, the cost of electrolyzers. The second, but they are not, the, the, let's say, the largest part of the levelized cost of energy uh, for, uh, for the production of hydrogen. Then you have to bring down the electricity costs, and that's why it makes sense to produce when you have comparative advantages uh, and not wherever you have a consumption center and transport the hydrogen. Uh, and then uh, I think you need to work on the demand side. Uh, you need to work as we are doing through the mandates and the Renewable Energy Directive and to push the substitution of uh, grey hydrogen with uh, renewable, renewable hydrogen. Uh, I think to work, you need to uh, also uh, contribute uh, to reduce the green premium, so the operational costs uh, of purchasing uh, the commodity. And I think you have to work at the end also on the branding and on the consumer interest for green products. 
Because if you look, and I hope I'm not saying something wrong, but talking to many operators, if you look at the impact that having produced a green steel has on the final cost of a car, it's a few hundred euros, even between 200 and 300 euros. And it's something that consumer may be ready to pay if they want to have a green product, not only because of the engine, but because of the overall carbon intensity of the product they want. So for a number of products and for a number of sectors, I think actually there is a gap that we can bridge uh, if you take together the decarbonization advantages and the, the fact that you can become competitive in, in a market that has different preferences. And, but it requires, as I said, not one policy, but putting together in a coherent way different levers. Okay, so do you think the consumer would bear the cost of um, choosing to green hydrogen over a cheaper energy source? Well, frankly speaking, uh, I think that, uh, the, as my colleague said, the cost must be competitive. If it's not, they will not go because it's just uh, they will die. So, uh, but if I may add something about the, the, the challenge that we, fa we are facing and, and what we need to tackle is, I think we need also to tackle um, a more simple uh, legislative framework. Uh, when I look at what we're doing in Europe for, let's say, several years now, discussing on the color of the hydrogen, and not, or not only two colors, let's say green or, and gray, but a, a real rainbow of, of colors. Uh, when I look to the discussion we had on, on the role or not of uh, decarbonized hydrogen, the target is to decarbonize and not to make renewables. Uh, when I look also to the discussion we have, or we had on the additionality and the complexity that uh, we introduced to produce a, a hydrogen which is recognized to decarbonize the system, I think that we are not really helping uh, the, the development of, of the sector and, and the cost because it brings a lot of uncertainty to, to, to the producers and the consumers. And I really think that we, we, we must simplify things. And in fact, if I go to, to, to also the, the networks, it is the same issue. We are now discussing of a project of directive. In, the, in that directive, uh, there, is, there are some ideas to go further to what we've done in electricity or in natural gas regarding, for, in, for instance, unbundling. We have a solution with, which works for electricity, for natural gas, unbundling. But we, some, some, some institutions want to go further uh, and to, for, for instance, to uh, uh, forbid, uh, to ban uh, ITO um, TSOs uh, to be uh, hydrogen operators. The problem is that most of the TSOs in Germany are on ITO regime. The problem is that the main TSO in France is under the ITO regime. So if, if we don't simplify, if we don't just say where, where we are for, for this point, we, we will have some problems. Another issue is also the, the project of having zero tariff at the interconnection point. It seems to be a good idea, but in reality, it will not work. So I really think that one of the issues, one of the levers is simplicity in, in the framework. Maria. Legal clarity is needed, and of course, I fully agree that it's needed, but at the same time, we need to have a very clear and proper framework in order to have 
clean hydrogen, and I insist on this, because the bet for Europe and, uh, to become a pioneer, to remain a pioneer in this production, and to decarbonize not only the, the energy mix, but also products, as Stefan has already mentioned, and we are uh, supporting this with various legislative uh, uh, instruments, including uh, eco-design, sustainable products, and the packaging and packaging uh, waste direction, uh, di directive, sorry, is that we have to consider what is clean hydrogen. We have the Delegated Act. We do not re reopen the Delegated Act. It is a part of Red Free. So we have to proceed immediately to the implementation of Red Free. It is a key piece of legislation in order to send the message that we know what is clean hydrogen. We are asking for, from the investors to proceed with investing in RES and then to, to give this kind of electricity to produce clean hydrogen. And we also use the, the, the installations and the deployment since two, two years before. And this is it. It's clean. It's clear. I know that France has some kind of reluctance in terms of adapting the, the legislation, but it's not relevant with the production of clean hydrogen. Is it conceivable that we're sitting now in 2023, halfway through the year, that we achieve these targets by 2030? Yes, I think it is. With the pace that we're following, and with the pace that the legislation is following and also with the interest and the international competitiveness, allow me to say. Okay. We have to see what is happening in China. We, we have to see what is happening in the US with IRA. It is important for the EU. Okay. Otherwise, we will be the last one. <laughs> Not again. Uh, let's take some questions from our audience. So, uh, Tudy Bernier. Uh, how we now have an EU definition of renewable hydrogen as per the final I read read uh, two delegate acts, but not yet a formal definition of low carbon hydrogen planned through a future delegated act. Maybe you want to comment on this, Maria. According to panelists, uh, what uh, should that definition be and why? I think that Stefan is the person. Okay. <laughs> that must be. Oh, you always say Stefano. Then uh, Raphael looked my direction, so he, the, he's next. legislation. <laughs> In, in, indeed, uh, I think we, what we are aiming to is to mirror the, in, a, in a forthcoming delegated act, uh, the same methodology that we use uh, for identifying the, the greenhouse emissions, okay. the methodology calculate greenhouse emissions for renewable uh, hydrogen. We need first to have the gas market package adopted. That will be the legal basis. And there, there are the provisions that are referring to low carbon hydrogen. And that on that basis, we will have to delegate that. We, try to, we will try to come immediately after the adoption as soon as possible, because we need it's, it's an important element for the market. So we'll try to be as fast as we can. But we need first the gas market package. Okay. Um, yeah, I, uh, I agree that we need the gas package to be basically uh, concluded because this is what actually provides the legal basis for the Delegated Act. It's still a bit weird that uh, policymakers are actually uh, giving their uh, opinions on low carbon hydrogen without knowing exactly what it is because it's not really, uh, you know... Why does that surprise you? Uh, <laughs> yeah, the Brussels is, is like it is. But no, there, there is still a, an issue of knowing what we're talking about when we're talking about low carbon hydrogen. Most of the time it's blue hydrogen. We know the French also want to have this nuclear hydrogen, which is also a, a question mark because uh, 
the framework we have with green hydrogen is quite complete now, and this is probably where we should focus our efforts when we look at that, but also when we look at the global price of gas at the moment. You know, there, there, was, there were big hopes on blue hydrogen a few years ago. Now it seems a bit more uncertain because it would cost a lot of money also uh, to source gas and then to actually uh, transform it and, and, and transform it into hydrogen. So these are questions that are related, but still we need the gas package to be, to be done First, and on that, uh, I think uh, the trilogues will, will uh, tell what's going on. Okay. Anyone else, Maria, if you want to follow up? No? I think that the, the most important issue is uh, at the very first level to, to explain to the member states that we have to, to increase our pace. And it is a clear message. A clear message to all, to all of us, including my home country, Greece, because we need a lot to do in order to, to become a, a hydrogen hub. And it, uh, in terms of geographical position, we have a privilege. But the case is that we need an overall European legislative framework with very clear definitions and clear, clear signals to the market. Sure. Yes, we'll be first, I agree with the panelists that we need this package for the end of the year, hopefully. But uh, I really think that w what we need is non-decarbonized hydrogen, will it be renewable or not? What I, what I think is that we should have something which is n neutral from the technology point of view, because we don't know exactly what will happen. Nobody knows what, what, what will be the cost and, or, and the technology. So if we close some, some possibility now, it's, it's maybe something that we will regret in the future. Okay. Manuel? Uh, just an additional point uh, is that on the hydrogen uh, infrastructure need, uh, there's one point we must not forget. It's true for the industry, because we will electrify much more than before. It's true for the overall, uh, I would say, consumer part, with the households, the industry, and all the others, is that if you don't have an hydrogen infrastructure, your electricity grid will collapse. That's for sure. That's optimistic. No, 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 but that's a reality. It's, it's not possible to follow with the electrification yeah. if, if you don't have an hydrogen uh, network. So it provides as well a support and a solution to that. That's one of the big challenges. So this is something that we need as well to keep in mind and to see as part of the solution. Competition molecules with, uh, versus electro electrons, it, it is something that it is complementary. It is the sector okay. coupling as well. It's, uh, of course, it, we need hydrogen as we need gas, as we need everything that is stabilizing the market. Uh, Stefan, you wanted to follow up? Uh, no, because I, I have an instinctive reaction every time I'm confronted with technological neutrality. Uh, because one, one line of, of, of reaction will be to explain in what ways we are technologically neutral. But there is one element that I still don't get. Because it seems that we are prohibiting the trade of any forms of hydrogen. And, and it's not. No one is treating in any discriminatory way any forms of hydrogen. Even in our strategy, we're relatively neutral agnostic that the blue hydrogen in different forms will have to come in first. It's uh, coming in at a different price point. Now, after Repower U, we are a bit more skeptical about the use of gas, uh, even if it's, then there is a capture. Uh, what the only thing that we are doing is uh, to uh, concentrate uh, some instrument of support, uh, mainly on, on the supply side, partly also on the demand side with the red free, on what we think is the most consistent and coherent form of hydrogen with our decarbonization uh, ambitions. And second, the one which needs the most support. So the only way in which we are taking a positive uh, 
uh, preference for one form of hydrogen is on the direction of some forms of subsidy and supplies. But there is nothing in our legislation in the gas market package that says you don't, cannot put in the pipe one color of hydrogen or another or that is prohibiting uh, or in any way negatively affecting the, um, the trade into other forms of hydrogen. And for me, it's a form of uh, consumer protection. If a consumer wants to buy something that is fully renewables, has to know, based on clear rules, what he's buying. Because the worst for me is to sell one commodity saying that it's something, while in reality I use electricity from the grids or use other, other forms uh, to produce it. Rafael, did you want to add something? Um, yeah, I think more, not really on the, on the topic of, of um, technology neutrality, but on, on the topic that also Thierry was mentioning, which is uh, integrated planning. And I think, you know, we were saying there not, need not to be any competition or battle between electrons and molecules and okay. all of that. And this is absolutely true. I would absolutely support that when we look at the future of the network, we do need to plan electricity, the electricity grid with the hydrogen grid because electrolyzers and, uh, and well, have a strong relation with the electricity grid, but also with the gas grid. Uh, unfortunately, that's not really what we're saying at the moment, where in the gas package, for example, we're talking about having the gas uh, network operators and hydrogen operators operating together, but we don't see where electricity sits and, and where it would be integrated. And, and this is a big problem. Uh, for us because, of course, the gas uh, network operators have a place, but it needs to be on an equal footing with other, um, other networks so that we're really sure that we're not favoring one uh, or the other. Okay, thank you. Uh, thanks also to uh, Thierry for that question. Thierry was from CO2 Value Europe. Next question is from Luca Franza from Edison. The southeastern neighborhood, namely the East Med Basin, has great hydrogen potential thanks to cheap renewables and good load factors for electrolyzers. How can the EU facilitate imports from there with a view to achieve the 10 uh, megatons uh, target by 2030? Who wants that question? Rafael. <laughs> Um, yeah, um, I'm not sure uh, I really want to, to comment on that. I think, uh, yeah, the, the question of maximizing where we can produce uh, renewable uh, energy or when we can produce electricity to actually make green hydrogen makes sense. Uh, but again, I think one of the big things that we're seeing at the moment is that the volumes of hydrogen that we will have, especially in the early 2030s, will not be that huge. And so we really need to concentrate where we use hydrogen in the most difficult to electrify sectors on heavy industry. So uh, these big projects may have a rationale if we are able to really show that there is production and there is demand and they will be connected, then it should not be a problem. But producing for the sake of producing and then hoping that we'll find demand somewhere is also a bit more, a bit more tricky. That's why planning is important. Right. I think that we have the potential to increase the production, to scale up the production, particularly in Northeast Europe, because it is important to say that we are in this neighborhood too. We have also third countries that they can also increase their potential in terms of production. And the, the easiest way to, to, to transform the uh, hydrogen into derivative is ammonia. It is the most mature. So we have to consider how can we facilitate the first level, the very first level of production. And then in this regard, I would like to underline the, 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 the question of neocolonialism. 
I think that we have also to invest heavily in these areas, particularly in third countries, in order to increase the, the potential of forests and in order to, to have electricity enough and also hydrogen enough, clean hydrogen, and at the same time to, to monitor, to closely monitoring these kind of investments uh, in, a, in a way of independence uh, authorities from, from the local governments, because a lot of questions are raising, and I think that the merits that the, uh, the people need in their, in their countries, it is important to give them up, back. So I think that it is a very, very big opportunity. We have to consider the easiest and the low-cost way in order to, to increase the capacity of producing clean, clean hydrogen, particularly in this area. Thank you. Stefano, anything to add there? Uh, I think Edison knows well the market of South, uh, Southeastern Europe. I think there is a lot of things moving there. Um, I see that region and that corridor slightly one step behind the southwestern corridor and northwest corridor the north sea uh, and also possibly also the baltic nordic corridor but still with a lot of potential i think it's more than just a future fantasy there is also really good interconnections with bulgaria to romania uh, there are towards Italy uh, as well. So I think it's an area where we look with a lot of attention. I, as I said, there's uh, slightly more uh, work to do than the other emerging corridors, but I think it is, uh, it has a lot of potential. And DESPA has already proposed a lot uh, of mature proposals concerning hydrogen backbone in terms of Greece, Bulgaria and uh, North Macedonia. Mm -hmm. But it remains to be seen if they are finally be eligible in, in terms of CEF okay. uh, connecting Europe facility. But it is a good start. It needs time, I think, to mature. And if I may, sure. oh, is it important? Uh, again, we are going now for the first exercise in these uh, projects of common interest, etc. I think what will be important is to try and imagine uh, a very even and a gradual development of a network across the entire Europe. I think it will be pos that will be also a good signal that this is an agenda for everyone, and some will need more time, will need to, before being mature, for other steps, and even for access to funding, we'll have a lot more work to do. But I think it's important that we start to see that there are dots and connections across the entire uh, map of Europe. Okay, Thierry, how do you see this in, in terms of the connections across the map? I, I fully agree. I, I think. Uh, what is at stake is first to build around those areas I was mentioning in the beginning, and then trying to connect them between sure. themselves. And this is why planification is absolutely key, because we first, if we look at hydrogen system, we need to, to have the planification taking into account the project of production, the project of or cons consumption, the storages as well, and the pipes. And in, if we do that, we will avoid to build use less infrastructure because nobody wants that, no, nor the TSOs because we don't want to invest for nothing and we have no customers, no money. So it's absolutely essential. Then it is also essential, to, as Raphael said, to planify uh, with natural gas and electricity. Why natural gas? Because a part of this hydrogen network will, be, will come from the existing natural gas. So we have to plan the decrease of natural gas consumption to uh, uh, get new, uh, let's say, uh, available infrastructure, uh, not new, but existing infrastructure, to, to be able to repurpose them. So we need to, to planify together the decrease of uh, natural gas and the increase of, of, of uh, hydrogen. And third, why it is important to, to get this connection with electricity, it is because 
electrolyzers are a bridge between the electric system and hydrogen system. So the place where we will put the electrolyzers uh, will, uh, will give a result on the planification of the, of the electric grid and hydrogen grid. So we have to, to look at from a, a holistic point of view to those three uh, systems to, to, to make the good choices. I think it is really key. Thank you. Emmanuel, anything to add on this? No, I think it's, uh, it's, completely, uh, it's completely correct. And this is why you have to be able to connect the most competitive production places with few electrical interconnections to the consumption place through the transport and the storage. And this is really what, uh, what is the overall plan and this is what we should uh, build. And it's the only way to be competitive. Thank you. Uh, next question is from uh, Maud Bowman from uh, Global Council. How can we make sure that the EU hydrogen strategy is deployed across all member states? What do you think of Greece's proposal to set quotas per country in the EU hydrogen banks auctions? Maria's going last in this one. Um, Raphael. Yes, I will. Um, yeah, on this I will just repeat what uh, I've said earlier is that uh, if we have uh, not that much volumes, uh, if we have also a question of um, value attribution across Europe, we would need to look at uh, you know, incentivizing the countries that have a strongest added value in their industrial policy and really link the industrial policy to the creation of, of hydrogen or to the production or demand of hydrogen. Uh, because not everyone can build the same thing and not everyone can have the same role, but still we need to ensure that there is a, a good enough distribution of added value and not everything going to one industrial powerhouse while the other countries are actually just supplying the hydrogen and the feedstock. So, so it's really about also having a good industrial policy to look at the best added value at national level. There you, you agree with that? No? No. Yeah, okay. Anyone else on this? Maria. Well, let me say a few things concerning Hydrogen Bank because I have also the responsibility as the shadow on behalf of the Parliament. It is just one of the instruments that we will use in order to, to increase our capacity in terms of clean hydrogen. And I would like to explain that uh, first, Hydrogen Bank is important to, to, to give the opportunity for new ideas, innovative ideas, in order to scale up. I strongly believe that we have to wrap up the whole value chain of clean hydrogen and every and each part of the value chain, starting with the innovative ideas which are facing uh, in a joint undertaking a kind of bottleneck effect. We have a lot of innovative ideas. We cannot commercialize them due to the lack of money. So it is important to go ahead with uh, using hydrogen bank. It is also important to support the auctions with the 800 millions. It is also important to, to, to give a signal that we have hydrogen bank, we have the IB, we have also to engage the private sector. And when it comes to the member states, every and each member state has its own strategy regarding hydrogen. Now, since we're clarifying the, the, the environment in terms of investments, I think that these kind of, of strategies should be more complementary to each other. And it is very, very important for me. According to my opinion, the most mature strategy is the strategy that is Germany providing to the table and also the strategy from the Netherlands. The Netherlands, they start already using uh, the strategy in order to build the, the proper infrastructure. But Greece is not in the same uh, position. We are trying to, 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 to start working on the infrastructure. I have already mentioned this for the, T, the Greek TSO has already proposed something in the, in the important project of common interest. But for this time of period, we have just gas infrastructure. 
and we need to have hydrogen dedicated infrastructure, particularly in Western Macedonia, which is a region under the decarbonization, it is regions under transition, on which hydrogen valley will be fit and proper, for instance. Just on, on Hydrogen Bank, can you, can you tell us a little bit about how Hydrogen Bank works specifically? Yes, it, it will be a bank which will cover three billions at the year of 2023. It will be a part of the, of the budget, of course, and the first 800 will be used for, for, for auctions. But it is also important to understand that we are working on it in order to have a point of reference in terms of investing in hydrogen, in clean hydrogen only. Because the, the, the part of hydrogen that we would like to wrap, to wrap up, the part of hydrogen we would like to take off, I mean, is clean hydrogen. Hydrogen coming from renewable energy. Okay. Stefano, anything to add? On, on the point of the, the pan-European uh, nature of the, uh, I, um, the hydrogen agenda, um, it's, um, I have a lot of sympathy for this argument, and I already said that I think it's one of our priorities is to make sure that everyone has stakes in it. Uh, but I think it's more an issue that you can address through a lot of technical assistance, a lot of expertise sharing, best practices sharing, and of course a bit of fairness in, in the distribution and access to the different funding, uh, funding instruments. But I think I, I would be a bit more resistant to the idea of, of quotas and a just retour, especially when they use European money. Uh, one way we can I think it's unavoidable to give member states a sort of return on what they invest if that we use the bank, for instance, to pool member states' money in addition to the European money. In that case, if you use the auction as a service for member states, I think it's normal that they can ask that this goes to their industries or goes to certain, uh, what can I say, delivery points, uh, uh, certain infrastructure for them. It may well be that some members are interested in getting the hydrogen and access to, to a European Hydrogen Bank funded project simply because they initially they want just the transmission through their country. Not necessarily it stays in the country, but at least they start having a stake, a stake in it. So. Okay, thank you. Um, let's go to questions from Olivier Dubloc. Olivier from Ubiquity asks this to Raphael. What is the threshold to consider green hydrogen as cheap? What's the threshold for cheap hydrogen? Yeah, what's the price? <laughs> I, I wouldn't uh, say anything on that. I think this is all very volatile and also very depending. Okay. I, I think our friends from the industry might have sure. a better idea on that. It's a matter of cheap, it's a matter of being competitive. Yeah. That's, that's completely different. What's the closest benchmark, you would think, in terms of what's the next best thing that you're going to price against? Well, this is what I was mentioning before. Huh? In, our, in our shift from coal yeah. to hydrogen, we need to be competitive, hydrogen versus natural gas and uh, carbon costs included. So. Okay. And that's, that's, that's a challenge. But this is what we need to, to reach to remain competitive. Is that going to be a fair comparison, though, when the carbon costs are not probably not going to be clear for some time? Maria? Indeed. Indeed. We need a carbon price, and it is, it is important to, to explain to, to, the, to the person who is posing the question that everything is interlinked, and it is dependent on the prices in the market. Okay. If we have a price in the market of natural gas of 0 0.5, what is the, the proper price for, for clean hydrogen? 
Okay, let's uh, go to another question. This one's from uh, Anton Mifsud Benici. What are the implications of green hydrogen on the demand for critical raw materials? Manuel. I don't know what you include into, uh, into critical raw materials, if it's the European Union definition. Still, is not in. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a pity, but still, is not in. So I'm not sure that there will be a big, uh, I would say, impact on the, on the demand versus the, because the, the critical raw materials are for batteries, electrical sure. vehicles, and so on. So not necessarily linked to the hydrogen production or demand, maybe a bit indirectly, but it's more linked to the electrical vehicle and to the batteries. Sure. And this is very important, and this is important it is addressed. But unfortunately, still is not perceived as a critical material yeah. yet. Okay, Stefano. There is a component of some critical materials in electrolyzers, so there is an implication. And that's why we put together on the table together the Net Zero Industry Act, which talks about the manufacturing of electrolyzers as well. And I see the Parliament is trying to expand the definition uh, of uh, hydrogen-related technologies, but also the Critical Raw Materials Act, uh, where we, we try to uh, also address the issue of dependencies and make it easier to extract and process materials in, e in, in Europe and, and also to, to facilitate circularity. Okay. A question from Akira Sato. How will the EU uh, stimulate and create green basic materials markets such as steel or cement? Uh, those materials have a double standard market, according to Akira, uh, the, where the problem is that it's difficult to differentiate in its nature and performance quite apart from the automotive industry. I'm looking to the end of the panel there. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure I properly get the question. Okay. Um, how, how do you stimulate and create green basic materials markets such as steel or cement? Um, I think you've answered that to a large degree. Yeah. Okay. Anyone else don't want to add to that? And maybe the question of public procurement and the standards okay. that we set is important on this in order to increase the demand. But I have no idea that there are studies saying that the performance of green materials are lower than the performance of the of the uh, linear one. Okay. I think it's maybe. Thank you. I, we already had a, qu a question from Maud Bowen, but I like this one, so we're going to ask. Uh, going to get a second bite. Is the hydrogen corridor a realistic political project when France, Spain, Portugal do not agree on the role of nuclear derived hydrogen? <laughs> Okay. Raphael was first to smile, so he's going to answer first. <laughs> yeah, no, my, my, my answer would be that you should actually ask the, 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 the French official uh, about that because there is a, a real discussion indeed about, uh, and we heard about, you know, Paris wanting to put uh, pink hydrogen or nuclear-derived hydrogen into the, the H2MED. I don't think this is on paper yet, and I, I'm... Uh, I'm not sure this is realistic, but this is still something that, that we see uh, floating around. Uh, but yeah, this is more a question of, of national uh, authorities. Um, you may. I'm not a French official. <laughs> more is the pity. But what I hear uh, from, from them is that they, seems, they seem to be happy with the recent, very recent discussion at, at uh, the European level. So I think this question should be more or less closed now, and that uh, I think it's, uh, it clears the, the path for, for, for the H2MED uh, project and also for the corridor uh, going from Marseille to, to, to the German border, as it was mentioned by, by the Chancellor uh, Scholz and the President Macron. Okay, I know better than to ask that question to the Commission, I think. <laughs> Unless you want to answer? I, I can answer saying that I think the fear that uh, with these projects we displace one or the other source of uh, hydrogen production is misplaced. I think 
uh, H2MED, I think, is a two million ton uh, project. Um, there is, I think, the demand in Europe will be much higher in the area targeted by this infrastructure. So I don't, I think there will be room for everybody. Okay, can we bring up the hashtag again for our audience to get another round of questions in as well? It's Hydrogen Corridor for Slido. There you go, Hydrogen Corridor. Send uh, many more questions as you can. We've got about 30 minutes left. We have this question from Luis Ignacio Parada. And Hydrogen Europe and Eurofair called in the Copenhagen Infrastructure Forum this month for the, the development of an EU H2 network, including storages, as a prerequisite for decarbonization of the industries and meeting 2030 targets. Isn't the CF, I have to say, I don't know how to pronounce that, insufficient to that regard? Um, for a nascent industry? Isn't the, the CFE uh, insufficient to that regard for a nascent industry? We need only public money because the question is that we have connecting Euro facility provision until 2027. Okay. So there is a part of public money dedicated to this important project of common interest. Mm -hmm. But we have also to be attractive in order to invest in, 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 in private money. Okay. It's not a question only to the member states and also to the EU. It is also to the private sector, which needs to be decarbonized in order to have the privilege and the advantages in the global market. Okay, we've touched on some of this already, but we want to talk about the, the entire value chain here as well. You know, where are the bottlenecks likely to be in the value chain? What needs more attention in terms of production, consumption, and transportation? Um, where do you see the problems and, and hiccups along the way? Again, I think we need a comprehensive approach. There is no part of the value chain that is uh, that requires less attention than the others. Uh, mostly, I think maybe in the beginning of, of our work, we focused uh, more extensively on the supply side, so on the electrolyzers, the generation, uh, and partly on the infrastructure already when they had the 10 year revision. And last year with Red 3, we are focusing a bit more on demand. And I think it's, it's good that we rebalance with attention to demand because indeed, if there is no clarity on the demand side on uh, uh, what they can get on the supply and at what cost, etc., and if they don't move, not, the supply uh, will not move from paper projects to final, uh, final investment decision. Okay. Rafael? Yeah, um, on this, um, I, I would totally agree. The, the demand question is a key question. We know that with the red targets, we have the sub-target on the RFNBO, uh, so, so we have a bit of ensured demand, or at least we know where, where it will land, but it's still not at the level uh, that we're seeing. If we look at Repower EU, it's 20 million tons that should be uh, produced by 2030. It also entails a lot of displacement of uh, natural gas or fossil gas that would be out of the system thanks to these 20 million tons. Uh, at the same time, I think I've seen a, a workshop organized by the Commission on the future infrastructure and the uh, uh, big industry where, where there, you know, chemical industry, uh, steel industry, and it was amounting to six, seven, or eight million tons max. So, so you know, it, we're still not there and we're not really sure what we would do with these 20 million tons uh, if we had them, but also how we would produce them. So, so it's good to have ambitious targets, but it's also very good to look at actually what will be the actual demand by 2030, because this has strong implication for, for the grid and for the infrastructure that we develop. So that might be one of the bottlenecks. Do we have a, coming to Secretary, do we have a, an export market potential for, for this? You mean exporting hydrogen out of yeah, uh, the European Union? Um, I think uh, we're much more an importer market at the okay. moment. I suppose 
okay with this, yeah. but I would like to focus on the issue of, of creating hubs in our ports because it is important to have the proper infrastructures uh, in, in, at the points of, of demand. Yeah. And the, the way that we approach the alternative fuels and the e-fuels, it is important to, to, take into, to be taken into account. So I think that the demand will increase. And the demand will meet the, the target of 2010 uh, uh, production here in the EU and 10 imports. I think that uh, we need the infrastructure not only in terms of corridor, but also in terms of refueling, in terms of having the proper infrastructure at the ports, in terms of increasing uh, the innovation, and in terms of encouraging the, 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 the maritime sector to, to adapt as fast as possible. Uh, anyone else to add? Thank you. Uh, just yes, Emmanuel. Just one point on that question uh, is that if you want it to happen, I would say, uh, in a pragmatic way, we really need to, to show pragmatism and to go quick. I mean, all the legislation is for sure a first step and needed, all the support as well, but we need to have, a, uh, in terms of who is operating, should be the same as natural gas, very naturally. It's the same pathway, it will be repurposing, it will be the same type of storage, the same location, the same... If you don't want it, if you want it to work, we have to be simple. And as a consumer, if we want to make the right choice uh, in terms of economic choice between natural gas and hydrogen, we need to make sure that transport and storage is, is not adding a further complexity. We need to have a single tariff. At the end, we need to be able to choose only on the merit. The rest should be simple. Do you think that's realistic politically? I don't know. You just just need to put it on the table and debate. Huh? <laughs> What we see in, in the Netherlands, in Germany, for instance, is that, and in Denmark as well, is that the national authorities have entitled the, the CSOs to do that job, which should have done the same at, the, I would say, the European level, uh, because we would uh, save some time. Yeah. And if I may uh, rebond also an answer to the previous question, sure. just to give an illustration on, on the H2MED project of the support scheme. It's, of course, it's, it's good, the CEF system, but it's a bit, a bit heavy and complicated. Uh, you, you, you mentioned at the beginning that the, the project has been announced by the Prime Minister of Portugal and, and, and Spain and, and the President of France. It was in October, and then we came to the European Commission to say, oh, yes, uh, we, when I say we, Terega, uh, Geartegas and Enagas, we are working on this project. Uh, we think it is a good project, uh, and uh, we will develop it. Um, and but we will would like to to know if there is a European support. The answer was yes, and if there would be some European money uh, completing the private money, and then the answer has been yes, maybe probably, but <laughs> you have to to go in the PCI process, then in next year you will know if you are or not in the PCI list. So we don't know yet. And the following year, and that means two years after, we will, you will know if you have some safe money. Sorry, but there is also state aid provisions. So I think that the, the procedure is maybe slow, but it is a very transparent procedure in terms of uh, selecting IPCI first, because there are a lot of countries interesting for not a huge amount of money. Oh. <laughs> this is the first. And second is that the, 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 the 
the project that we are discussing about is in the, in the framework of uh, the, the state aid provision. So I think that there is enough public funding coming from different budgets, France, for Portugal and Spain, in order to start working on it. This one goes to my point earlier about whether we achieve this by 2030 in any significant way, because this is the reality of doing the politics of this. Yes, it should technically be possible, but the process of moving through not just uh, the financing, which you've illustrated in certainly one regard, and then the planning and, and uh, even getting permits to build uh, the, the infrastructure at certain points as well. That's another two, three years as well. So, you know, Stefano, are, are we overly optimistic? It's good to have the target. There's, there's no doubt about that. But are we overly optimistic that, that, that this, uh, these targets can be achieved by 2030? Or has, does this process need to be streamlined and clarified in terms of, of uh, financing as well? in a new way? There are two answers to that. On, on the targets, I think you need to be ambitious, you need to mobilize, sure. and I think we are still in time on a trajectory to make it. On the CEF, I have to be very clear, no, the funding is not enough, because a mistake was done by those who took the decision at the time of this uh, multi-annual financial framework to reduce the budget from seven and something to 5.1 uh, billion euro. Now, already after two rounds, we are uh, slightly more than between three and four billion left. And this, for projects of this, uh, and we have two or three in Europe, I think this is largely insufficient. We have a lot of money under the recovery fund, 10 billion euro for hydrogen projects, mostly for national projects. This is a cross-border projects, so it's difficult that uh, you have to coordinate national funding if you want to put money there. The IPCI is state aid, again, national funding. So I do think, number one, there is an issue of critical mass for the Connected Europe facility, and I hope that the legislator, the next time we discuss the multi-annual financial framework, will give to this instrument more money. There is an issue of the, the speed of the process. I totally agree that for a project promoter waiting one year and a half to know if you're on a list and then reapply for having the funding is, is very cumbersome uh, compared, to other, compared to other instruments. We can have a more transparent and a speedier access. So I think this, I leave it to those who will be there. Uh, I think it's for the agenda for the next legislature, having more effective instruments, funding instruments for uh, cross-border infrastructure. Uh, Does that include leverage so. capital? It's not something we've really talked about here so far. You know, big, the big projects that Europe has set out to do in the last uh, two legislatures, you know, the, the leverage side of this, the private equity coming into this, uh, and uh, the scalability. The Juncker Fund was voodoo economics whenever it was, it was put on the table, and it, it worked. Uh, you know, we had uh, Commissioner Katainen running around Europe as a salesman for, uh, for every, every project that needed to raise cash. The, you know, the Americans, I remember interviewing the ambassador at the time, he said, look, your projects are fine, but what, you know, what we need are, are sort of projects on the table that we can buy into. This seems to be something that, that would attract investors in the medium to long term. You know, is this a, a funding opportunity, a funding gap that, that's there that can be closed with, with uh, private equity, Maria? Of course it's needed, because for, for the project we are discussing, on, the public funding will be approximately 50%, as I remember. Yeah. Am I right? It is 50%. So it, 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 we need the public money in order to, to cover the, the possibility of market failure. But at the same time, we need to, to, to engage the private sector. 
and of course to share the risks. And that's why we use the EAB funding, we also use the, sure. the, the state aid rules, we also use the, the CEF in, in, different, in different versions. The case for me is, of course, that we have not a huge amount of money in terms of CEF, and it is a, a very important point that Stefan has already raised. We have to change it as fast as possible, and of course, to have something double yeah. in, at, at the period of uh, 27 at, uh, at the forward. And the second issue is to ensure the private sector that their money will be put in, in, a, in, a, in an investment that uh, it has, at the end of the day, give them back revenues. Okay, go ahead. Thank you. Yes, I fully agree. Uh, of course, it cannot be only found by public money, obviously. And that so what I was referring to is the scalability of the leverage capital. It's like 50% is, is not really in sort of speculation territory. So. No, but what, what I mean is that we, yes, of course, we will have some private equity money for, for those, those, those projects. What, what we are trying to achieve is first to get money or commitments from the customers of the infrastructure because the, again this is key we, we will not decide anything if we have no customers for the infrastructure then we will uh, have money from our shareholders and if needed we will go to, to, to look for additional private money and of course public money and the what is at, at stake here is the uh, appropriate risk sharing between all those stakeholders and I would like to mention something which is, in, is happening in Germany today, uh, at least they're working on it, and I think it's very interesting. Uh, Germany has decided to uh, ask to the gas TSOs to be the builders of, of the in hydrogen infrastructure, and the, because they don't want any uh, cross-subsidies between gas and hydrogen, they know that at the very beginning there will probably be some deficits, some losses. And what they have uh, imagined is to park those um, deficits in, in a, a regulated fund uh, with a state guarantee. It is, I think it is really an interesting solution. Of yeah. course, the details need to be, to be fixed, but I think it is very interesting to look precisely at what they are doing and maybe to see if, it's, if this is something that could inspire both at the European or at the other countries' level. Sure. Uh, that seems to me to fit very well with the, the REPAR agenda as well in terms of decarbonization, industrial, reindustrialization and energy security as well, that you know, the, the public value in this is, is more than just economic value uh, in, in the, the medium term. Uh, let's take another question or two. John Wilson, don't know where you're from, John, to Raphael, uh, I don't know how to pronounce this, joint uh, TYNDP, how do we do it? 10-year network development plans. Right, sorry. Yes. Um, joint 10-year development network plan. So uh, scenarios already provide an equal footing situation between power and gas. Should we not give more prominence to uh, H2TSO to accelerate decarbonization? Okay, so first question, who are the H2TSOs? Uh, can you name them, except for early kid maybe? But um, um, yeah, so the first question is where the, you know, the, the hydrogen network operators do not really exist at the moment. Then the question, and, and, and Thierry is talking about that too, integrated planning. Uh, but some, uh, and I think Thierry is, is in the category, say, okay, integrated planning means also the gas, who also you know, have the pipes, then should, should plan it. But we really think that electricity should also be in there because, uh, because of, of uh, you know, having every, everyone on an equal footing. Uh, Two things to say. First, 
uh, Emmanuel was saying that um, the the uh, the hydrogen grid would look like the gas grid, and I would say maybe for industry it's true, but it's not going to be true. For example, for the distribution grid, for the gas that goes into people's home, we know there is an overwhelming burden of proof that shows that hydrogen in heating is probably not going to be a thing, uh, or never going to be cost effective. So the gas is going to be quite different, uh, and you know, putting gas or electricity or any any network operator over others is, is probably not a, a good idea. And just to pick up on what was discussed before. I think it's very important that we talk about okay, public funding to prop up infrastructure, private, uh, private funding too. Uh, but when we talk about corridors and uh, you know, hydrogen backbone, all of that, we also need to be very, uh, very clear on the need to decarbonize and to decarbonize the gas grid, for example. So we need also to be very clear on, okay, this pipeline might be used for hydrogen in, at some point, but while, uh, meanwhile, it's still using fossil gas. And by when would we stop? Having or by when would we have 100% hydrogen transiting through, through that pipeline? And we need to also have that conversation and these safeguards, especially when we talk about public funding, because we cannot, you know, be funding a, an infrastructure that in the end we don't have enough volume to actually have hydrogen in it. So then we keep using it for gas, and then it becomes greenwashing, or it becomes blending, or it becomes things that we don't really want. So this is also something that we really need, you know, sunset clauses and dates for, for the gas transit. Okay, just to build on to that, maybe Maria will take this there. So from Lorenzo Marino, the strategic technologies for Europe platform is meant to sub substitute the European sovereignty fund. Do you think 10 billion will be enough to put European hydrogen on the map while competing, I think is the main point, while competing against uh, the IRA and uh, China's massive subsidies? I think we touched on some of this already, but then in the context of, of the, the geopolitical side and the, the, the global economy, IRA and China's massive subsidies. Do we need to do more on that? Sure. IRA is not only a question of money. Of course, it is a question of money. But it's also a question of simplicity of the framework. Okay. On that point of view, I think they seems to be more pragmatic than we are. And when I say that, it is collectively when I, I mean, it's when I include, sorry for that, the parliament, the commission, and the member states and the council. I think this brings a, a lot of complexity to, to, to the final uh, regu regulation in Europe. Okay. It's demo democracy, of course, but it's, it's also complexity. But you have to take into account that it is one state. It is the United States, <laughs> but it is one state. With the same language, with the same <laughs> yes, I live there. It's, uh, <laughs> Federation law. So uh, let's see. We're still the United States four years from now. Consider what is it? <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Anybody else want to touch on that before we move on to another question? Okay. Um, so from anonymous, uh, always questionable. Uh, theory said that there are problematic proposals in the hydrogen package, ITO model prohibition, for example. Etc. And insisting on such proposals just delays decarbonization and increases risks to investors. Is it not high time to stick to objectives such as decarbonization and be less rigid about ideological rules for hydrogen? Uh, well, I fully agree. Okay. I think, I mean, this question of unbundling has been solved 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. Now it seems that we are reopening the debate 20 years ago on the third directive, or let's say not 20 years, but uh, oh, 15 years. Reopening it, some, some, trying to, to, to take a revenge or something. I don't, don't understand what is at stake, in fact. It works. Nobody criticizes it. I mean, nor the ASER, nor the Commission, saying it works in electricity and gas. So why should we in, invent something else, more complicated, more uh, 
more administrative burden in hydrogen. Okay, thank you. Anyone else on that? Maybe um, just uh, quickly on, on unbundling. Uh, it, it's indeed very important. We have some, some things that work, but I think there is still a worry sometime when we look at uh, the next uh, big uh, hydrogen producers and hydrogen network operators that they will be also um, gas operators and they might have you know gas clients and hydrogen clients. And we do believe that it's going to be very different, you know, the client base. You're not going to have private consumers that are actually consuming hydrogen. So it's also important to make sure that we do not build the hydrogen grid by, you know, taxing and and taking, uh, making pay the, the sure. gas consumers. So there is still that that is at stake and that is still not really solved by the gas package yet. Okay, we, we've touched lots of different subjects and, and in some ways this question ties these together. Uh, what's the vision for the development of hydrogen infrastructure across Europe? You know, what, what is it that ties all these things together from local uh, to a pan-European uh, pan approach? You know, what does this look like? 30 years from now, 40 years from now, when, when we, we look back. I, I know it's not going to replace everything, or it's, it's, it's part of the picture. But what does it look like? And if we can just try to draw that together into a, a, a clear narrative. Do you know how, many, how much money is needed in order to have such kind of backbone? No. Nope. The estimation coming from Hydrogen Europe is 320 billion. Okay. Over what timeline? I think that but by the end of 2030, but it's not the case. The case is where are the money? We need the money on the table. Leverage capital. I think that nobody knows, in fact, what, what will happen and what will be needed uh, in, in gas, I mean, in hydrogen infrastructure. Uh, we'll see, it will, it will depend on, on, on the development of the industry and we will build the necessary infrastructure synchronized with the development of the industry. It's what has been done in electricity grids, what has been done in natural gas grids, and we will, I, I think we cannot afford to, to do differently because it would be too risky to, 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 to do so. So I think we, we should not be um, uh, afraid of big amounts because if we do that, we can do the same with the electricity grid. The, the amounts of money to put in the electricity grid and in the electricity production system is just huge. Will it be possible? We don't know. But I think we need to, to use all the levers possible to, to, to enable this energy transition. And electricity, for sure, is probably the main, but the molecules and hydrogen and also green gases, green gases, will also be there, not natural gas, it will be eradicated, but, but the green gases will be there as well, not only hydrogen. Okay, Stefano. Our, our vision is of a gradual development of the backbone network in Europe. At first, we'll start with very limited point-to-point -point connections around certain industrial clusters where there is a lot of demand already in refineries, chemical, heavy industries, and generation is close to, there is a proximity to sources of very cheap renewables or other sources at uh, affordable cost and then gradually we'll, we'll expand the network to connect uh, the areas of high demand which exceeds the possibility of local generation to areas where generation is cheap and there is a comparative advantage and, and progressively this will cover the entire continent mainly through repurposing of existing network but in some cases also through new additional pipelines and this brings me because I cannot be completely silent on the point of unbundling 
because there is a logic in the unbundling proposal, in the unbundling principle in competition law, which is linked to the need for an optimal development of the network. We, if you want a, a network that is avoiding either an excess investment in additional pipelines that you don't actually need, or on the contrary, will not develop them because there is an interest in keeping them for natural gas for a little longer, uh, to keep uh, to keep a market uh, that is being being reduced, you need operators that take a decision based on cost benefit assessment and the genuine interest of, of the development of the hydrogen market, not for other reasons. And you can have this model, competitive model with pure hydrogen operators taking infrastructure decision on on, on this merit uh, basis, only if you have a separation between the activities that are done in the gas sector and the activities that will be in the branch that is, uh, uh, is dealing with hydrogen. And this, the optimal model is a full unbundling and a full separation. You create a subsidiary and they do the business. We were thinking that were at least for a transitional period in 2030 other models. The ITO of all models in the gas sector, I say many are praising this model, but it's the one that you more difficult to monitor from the regulators uh, and the one that uh, has the least effective safeguards in case of uh, uh, contamination of interest. So we had maybe a visionary or a strict competitive uh, uh, position in the beginning in our, in our proposal because we wanted to create a level playing field across the single market. We wanted to have competitive players and push as many pure hydrogen new players and not have a legacy of the gas market. Now, I have to reassure everybody because the pragmatism is there in the rooms of the Parliament and the Council. I think both have taken a, a, a more, let's say, uh, let's call it pragmatic attitude. Uh, so in the end, I think where the landing zone between the Parliament and Council will be is that uh, much when, at, even at the end of a transition period where it will be set, I think the ITO model and the ISO model will also be. To be available. useful so. to have a competition commission that yeah. would want to work in a European investment bank as well, then would it? Okay, you're already fully divided. <laughs> so, uh, okay, we're right, really coming close uh, on time here as well. Anybody else want to finish on that comment? And then otherwise, we're going to do okay. So, let's go to our final uh, remarks as well. Start with Manuel and uh, work our way back to Stefano. Yeah, so just conclusion on my, on my side, I think that uh, we are, as in, company uh, committed to the net zero in 2050. Huh? Hydrogen will be part of the solution to bring that to net zero, that's for sure. Then we need to make it in a competitive way. And for that, we will definitely need to have a, a possibility to have the, the infrastructure present, to have a base load uh, sourcing so that we can run our industrial processes in a safe way with hydrogen and in a competitive way. We really need that and it's part of the solution, for sure. Thank you. Thank you. Well, you will not be surprised if, if, if I say that uh, infrastructures are key in this energy transition, and not only hydrogen infrastructure, but as well, uh, also electricity infrastructure. That's why we, we need absolutely integrated vision, integrated planning, and also uh, long-term targets, because we need to, have to, to bring visibility to the market. And finally, I think we need simplicity and pragmatism in the, in the package and in the framework. Simplicity and pragmatism. I like those words. Raphael. Uh, 
Um, yeah, I would support what Thierry is saying about integrated planning. This is something very important if we want to really uh, be able to build a cost-effective infrastructure grid uh, tomorrow. Uh, but it also means that we need to have clarity on the supply and on the demand where we will actually produce that hydrogen and uh, how much, you know, who will be the off-takers and where will it be consumed. This is not something we're seeing yet at the moment, but uh, time is ticking to do it. Okay, thank you. Maria. We have to act fast, and I think that our, our beauty, our competence is to provide stability and predictability to the market, legal clarity, and at the same time to, 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 to push for funding to at least to local projects in order to increase the, the capacity of hydrogen valleys and also for the industrial areas, but uh, they are need to proceed with decarbonizing itself. Thank you. Stefano, last word. <laughs> First, uh, what I what I learned from this discussion, I think the, the infrastructure planning uh, in hydrogen is a process. You cannot imagine to have already now all the elements and all the map clear in your mind. I think we will need to get there step by step. Not everything can be funded now in, in the first step, but it will be important at least to start putting some markers on the map and give an indication where we are going. Uh, second, that we need a lot of uh, complementary elements. Infrastructure planning needs a lot of more of information on where the demand is, how it will come, uh, where generation, where generation uh, is, uh, and how you, you support them, and to give more clarity uh, to investments on, on both sides. Uh, so I think uh, the European Hydrogen Bank and the work we have to do there together uh, to coordinate all these elements and to help uh, building a, a sort of infrastructure planning uh, or an integrated uh, comprehensive planning uh, of the hydrogen network in Europe will be extremely valuable. Thank you so much. Thank you to our panel for an excellent discussion today. It's clear that it's an extremely ambitious and complicated process. It's going to take a lot of energy to get it done, no doubt. Um, but the right direction is, has been set. Uh, so let me just thank our audience uh, online and here in the studio for their participation today. Lots of great questions. We really appreciate your engagement today. Uh, thank Anna and uh, the events team for, for organizing and the, uh, our uh, studio team here as well with uh, Bonya, uh, Zoran, Malta and Wilson and uh, all those who helped uh, with the, the catering if uh, your audience uh, online, sorry, you're not going to get that part. Uh, join us again next time, and I wish you a good evening. I'm Brian McGuire.